Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. This is Dean Finale from Politics and Life Science Radio. I am very happy to have Professor Dana Ferraris with us today. Professor Ferraris, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Dean. Well, you know, there's so much news going on now in the life science industry, and as you can imagine, you know, most of it revolves around the vaccine and the coronavirus. Everybody's uh, sort of getting, you know, this coronavirus fatigue, hearing about this, wearing the masks. But one of the interesting things, I think, is that people, you know, they hear that the coronavirus came out, you know, last winter and now fast forward 11 months later. And already we have two vaccines that are authorized. And it just seems that a lot of people think, hey, drug discovery and drug development is very easy. You know, we have two (laughs) vaccines developed. And, yeah, I hear you laughing because I know you (laughs) have been through that in real life and have actually developed a drug. So, you know, what can you tell people about, you know, how, about drug discovery and about how difficult it is? Or maybe you think yeah. it is easy. <laughs> no, gosh, no. Well, in, in a nutshell, the short answer is no, it's, it's certainly not easy. Um, it's probably one of the more challenging things, uh, you know, that you can do. But, uh, I, you know, I think one thing that, that needs to be clear is the distinction between you know, drug discovery and, and vaccine development. You know, so vaccines are, um, you know, they're not, you know, they take, the, the, the timeline for developing a vaccine can be as, you know, as short as you, you've seen these two for about uh, 10 months or 11 months, something like that, or it can be really, really long. You know, for example, you know, HIV still doesn't have uh, a viable vaccine for it. So, um, you know, it's, it's quite variable, but the cool thing about, you know, these two uh, vaccines that have just been developed is, is just how much technology and how much uh, scientific wherewithal, you know, and and might has been put behind it, you know, to get these things um, through the clinic. But you know, I think on average, um, vaccine development is, is a little bit shorter than um, drug development. You know, so drug development, I think, on average, is about uh, you know ten years or so from uh, the concept. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, um, you know knocking out a certain protein that that's involved in cancer or um, going all all the way from that concept. To, to uh, approval is, is usually around a 10 to 15 year uh, time frame. For vaccines, I think it's probably you know a lot less than that, as you can see from from all the vaccines that are coming out for uh, for COVID right now. But yeah, it's, it's very difficult, very long and drawn out. It is certainly not not trivial. Uh, it's a process. It's a process. So when you in your development of Cetazur, Dean, where 
what was some of the preclinical studies that you were looking for, and how did you start off? What was the what was was it like to initially discover the compound? And can you describe kind of how you brought that, you and your team brought yeah. that from discovery into the clinic? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, so so for sedazeridine, it was uh, you know we were a comp- a very small company at the time, uh, you know, mid-sized biotech company that um, had a drug for for um, myelodysplastic syndrome on the market already, and we knew that it was you know a lot of the cancer drugs at the time had a really you know, chemotherapy is not a fun process. If you ever know somebody that's gone through it, you, you realize just how painful it can be for the patient because they they have to get, um, you know, usually an IV infusion over several hours. they got to go back to the clinic several times for it. Um, it completely drains them. And one of the main reasons that, that a lot of these um, anti-cancer drugs, uh, you know, got chewed up and, and needed these, this IV infusion was because of, of this one enzyme, it's called cytidine deaminase. It ends up uh, metabolizing these um, these anti-cancer drugs. So, you know, our concept was was just why don't we develop uh, you know a, a CDA inhibitor, a cytidine deaminase uh, inhibitor that can um, you know keep the drug around and let the drug do its thing. And uh, and so that was the initial concept. Um, you know, at the time there's actually been quite a bit of um, you know. Um, leads out there that we could kind of modify in order to to discover um sedazuridine and that's exactly what we did so we kind of knew it was a good idea um we we did the, the most of the preclinical studies at the you know the biotech company but then and you know this is probably the most challenging part is once you actually do have a good viable clinical candidate you know it costs billions of dollars to put a drug from from that point through the clinic um, that's get, again just on average. So you know, a small company doesn't have that kind of financial wherewithal, and uh, what it really requires is um, collaboration, usually with big pharma. Um, but you know, for this drug in particular, it was even more complicated because we got bought out. The company got bought out almost right around the time that we wanted to put this thing into the clinic. So at that point, you know, all the decisions are now being made by by Big Pharma, who ended up buying buying our company out as uh, Azi Pharmaceuticals. So, um, you know, the, the hardest part, and I think that, you know, I look back on it is is really how many hands it had to go through, and how many people had to be convinced that this was a good idea for it to get through the clinic. You know, so Azi bought us out means that that the, the you know, the, the execs at AZI had to say, okay, this is a good idea. Um, we're not going to scrap it. We're going to keep going with it. And then I think it went to Otsuka Pharmaceuticals. And I think finally it ended up with Aztecs, um, who ended up pushing it across the finish line. But it was, um, so the clinical part of it was really, you know, the, the, the question marks. So who is going to, you know, <laughs> who's going to champion this thing once we're gone? Because, you know, uh, Azi bought our, our site out or bought our company out and, and shut down the site. So that means all the scientists that were involved in the initial stages of this project are no longer even with the company, you know. So so that's probably the hardest uh, part of that particular compound. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point because a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of questions around, you know, drug development seem like, you know, they always come back to the financials. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, when you have a different set of decision makers, you know, it makes, what's your feeling that I know you probably don't have an exact answer for this, but, you know, do you get the feeling that a lot of startup companies that are developing drugs, you know, if they don't get that financial backing 
or that, you know, big pharma, as you mentioned, that comes in, swoops in and can afford to pay for that. It just seems like potential drugs and therapeutics that would be, you know, available to treat diseases kind of fall through the cracks because, you know, these companies, A, can't afford either by getting VC financing or uh, an acquisition, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, to move these things forward. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, it seems that these days every drug has has a unique story. Uh, but within that story, you almost always have, uh, you know, the, a cobbled together uh, conglomeration of, you know, in a, maybe academia, maybe venture capital, a little bit of biotech, a little bit of big pharma. It takes, you know, the, what, what's the expression? It takes a, it takes a village you know, to raise a, a you know, kid. So that that's kind of the same thing here. I, I, I think that you know, the only companies nowadays with the financial wherewithal to go from that concept all the way through um, clinical development or big pharma, you know, so that you can count the number of, of big pharmaceutical companies on, you know, a few hands, you know, a couple hands. But um, so I, I think more and more nowadays, collaboration is king. You know, you absolutely need to have um, a lot of parties that are that are committed to just this one um, compound in order to get it to get it approved. So. Uh, and that's what happened, you know, with Sedazuridine. You know, so, you know, like I said, along the line, people were still convinced that it was a good idea, and they kept on going and going and going. And the next thing you know, ten years later, there it is. <laughs> you know, he's got approval. So, um, yeah, well, yeah, that's a, it's a great right. contribution. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. That that does take a you know quite a bit, and there there may be some that fall by the wayside because of that. You know, a lot of these decisions have to be. You know, these are not decisions that can be made lightly because of how many billions and yes, I said billions of dollars are involved in in just one you know producing one drug. Sure, and as I mentioned, it was just a tremendous contribution that you made, and you know the people that ultimately brought this forward. I mean, when you think about cancer, over six hundred thousand people die each year of cancer. You know, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts about that? You know, where, where are we, you know, as far as uh, treatments for cancer go, in your opinion, or are we moving fast enough? Is there, is it a matter of, you know, we know Vice President-elect Biden, uh, his mm-hmm. son passed from cancer and mm-hmm. he had an initiative um, in the past to develop drugs for cancer. You know, what's your thoughts yeah. on that, just cancer in general? Is it the type of thing where, you know, if we dumped a lot of money in it, we could maybe cure cancer and prevent cancer? Or is it just the ideology just so complex that it's the type of thing where we're always going to be facing this yeah. battle? Yeah, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, cancer is just incredibly complex. I think, I think the way that, that we're, we're going after it nowadays is, is definitely um, a lot more uh, personalized. Okay. So I think we've recognized that, that, you know, it's not every liver cancer, for example, is not the same, you know, and and every brain cancer is not the same. Yeah, it's just they, they, they put a lot more emphasis on um, immunotherapy, OK, which is getting your immune system to recognize cancer cells. And we're making some pretty cool breakthroughs along those fronts, um, you know, and, and along those lines, you can also, you know, the one one concept is to take the patient's you know, find out what kind of you know, genotype is in that specific tumor for that specific patient and, and gear the therapy towards that specific uh, uh, tumor. So that kind of concept, this personalized medicine concept, has never really, I don't want to say never really sat well with big pharma because the, the potential market at the end of the day was, was not really, you know, not really worth it. There wasn't a platform out there where you could just say, okay, 
um, we'll develop, we'll spend a billion dollars to, to make this one compound because it'll cure every liver cancer, you know. But um, the personalized medicine, you know, that kind of concept takes every person's going to be unique, you know. And so it takes a lot of effort and a lot of, um, of money just to treat one patient, you know. So, um, yeah, I do think there's some really, really cool um, concepts coming up through the pipeline for, for cancer. And um, curing, you know, that's a strong word, um, but, but certainly treating it better. Let's put it that way. I think a lot more emphasis certainly in clinical trials has been put on identifying the certain genotype of tumor, you know, um, and, and treating that, you know, what drugs are best to treat that specific genotype rather than just, you know, blanket, you know, give radiation and, and, and all these nasty, other nasty chemotherapeutics uh, uh, like we have in the past. So sure, um, we are going in the right direction. Absolutely. Though. Great. This is Dean Finale on Politics and Life Science Radio. I'm speaking with Professor Dana Ferraris of McDaniel University. Uh, what exciting, you know, research projects are you working on in your lab now? Well, yeah, you know, I spent a lot of my career working on, on cancer, but obviously this past summer, um, you know, they, they basically, uh, you know, shut our, <laughs> they, they sent all the students home, and those are my, my main source of, of uh, researchers, you know, and, and um I, I kind of convinced our administration that it'd be a good idea if um, they allowed us to do some limited uh, research on campus as long as it was COVID related and, and they agreed to it and they, and they, they sponsored it. Um, so this past summer, my, me and my research group worked on uh, designing inhibitors for the um, SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus uh, uh, main protease. And so WBAL did a really lovely little segment on it. Uh, made the news. It was a lot of fun. Uh, the kids were were absolutely spectacular. They treated it like it was a full time job, and they and they put you know their heart and soul into it. Um, so yeah, we're going to be doing pretty much the same thing over the Jan term, which starts in a, in a couple weeks. Um, so yeah, the the uh, the protease. Uh, for those uh, that don't uh, understand virology very well, it's it's pretty simple. Um, the main protease is kind of a critical protein in the replication cycle of this virus. So, um, you know, the whole concept of a vaccine is that you can prevent, you know, treat your immune system to recognize the coronavirus. But once you have the, the coronavirus, you want to be also have the option of knocking down the amount of virus and the ability of the virus to, to replicate in your cells. Um, and that's what an antiviral will do. So there's a very clear distinction between a vaccine and an antiviral. So, for example, as I mentioned, HIV, it doesn't have a vaccine, but it has plenty of antivirals. And those antivirals can, can manage the disease to such an extent that, you know, you, you can live with it for a very long period of time. Um, so, you know, how close are we to antivirals uh, uh, for, for coronavirus? As I mentioned, drug discovery is a long process. So, you know, Pfizer, I think, is the first company to have a um, an antiviral uh, in the clinic. I think they put it in October of this year. So, you know, considering a normal clinical path, maybe even an accelerated one, they're probably still about three years away from from uh, approval. So, yeah. that's what my interesting. My up to. That's fantastic. You know, you mentioned yeah. the replication process, and before we came on the air, we were discussing about. You know, there's a lot of information out there, and unfortunately, you know, mm -hmm. the world we live in now, there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, when you're yeah, watching absolutely. the news as a scientist, what are what are some of the things that you see that you know just make you roll your eyes? You know, you hear these stories <laughs> on 
especially on the internet about people, you know, the, the vac, I got the, I'm afraid to get the vaccine because, yeah. you know, it causes infertility. It causes this, it causes that. Yeah. And, you know, just so much. What are, what are some of the things you hear that kind of make you chuckle? Um, well, yeah, I think that, 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 that you know, uh, pharmaceutical industry is, is the redheaded stepchild of, of businesses. You know, I, I don't think they, they are, um, they have the, the public, um, support often. So, um, you know, any, anytime you see government getting involved with, with companies to, to, you know, accelerate and make something, do, do something unprecedented is where there is, you, you kind of, you know, it's, it has, a, it has a weird odor to it, you know? And so, um, the kind of things that make me chuckle aren't so much, you know, uh, whether people believe it'll work or not. It's more like, uh, you know, the, 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 the ones that are drinking bleach or you know, stupid things like that, <laughs> that, that are more, uh, you know, like, can people really take this seriously? Um, I, I think eventually the good news about all these vaccinations that I, and or vaccines that are being developed, there's something like 60 in the clinic right now, some crazy amount. But, you know, what you're seeing is the early ones are actually you know, pretty effective. Um, we won't know long term effects from from these uh, vaccines for a while, obviously. Uh, but the good news is, you know, several tens of thousands of people have been taking them and you're, you're not hearing too many, you know, adverse effects, which is good. So that means at the very least they're safe, you know, so that that's kind of the good news. And the first indications, at least from, you know, the Moderna and the Pfizer uh, vaccines that they, they're, you know, effective as well. So um, I think there's a lot of really amazing science that has been going into these uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And I, you know, I hope that the world can, <laughs> can see that for what it is. Um, but yeah, the public perception is something that that's got to be fixed somehow. Uh, I'm, I don't have all the answers for that one. Uh, it's, it's, you know, social media is uh, uh, not not helping things. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Professor Ferrar. Thanks so much for joining us and for your contributions to science, for your contributions to curing cancer, and or at least you know helping to alleviate cancer, and for training the next generation of students. Uh, and professors Absolutely. and scientists. It's uh, really a pleasure to have you today and great hey, talking so with much. you. Thanks again, Dean. It's really great. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences. 